Musa Kalenge is an anomaly. Defying categorization, Musa has traversed multiple segments within the South African business sector. He started gaining fame early in a diverse career where he received significant attention for his startup endeavors as well as pioneering marketing work for big corporates. He has consistently been featured in business media publications and garnering awards for research branding and marketing campaigns conducted over the past two decades. This is The Healthy Business Show. I'm your host, Fred Road, and in this episode, I want to call upon Moose's considerable intellect for his subtle and not-so-subtle secrets on implementing a brand strategy. Musa, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Good to be here. Good to see you again. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Uh, we, we've known each other for some time. We used to serve our, our time at the IB together, which was a huge honor and a privilege. And I know you've achieved a lot uh, in your career already. You know, you're a branding and marketing professional, a writer, a speaker, a tree shaker, an entrepreneur. Let's just go back a bit. I mean, you, you started your first venture, Monate Fellas. Monate Fellas, yeah. Monate yeah. Fellas, <laughs> yeah. which you started when you were still a student at WITS, right? Yeah. So when most of the people at that age were really just thinking about beer money, <laughs> and I'm talking about myself included, you, you started a business. Yeah. So what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> One could argue I wasn't thinking at that particular stage. <laughs> um, the days of Monati Fellows were interesting because, you know, I was in my first, well, the time I started was in my second year, but when I got to Vits, I was just open to this like whole new world of stuff, you know, things that I'd never been um, mentally exposed to people from different places. How old were you then? Uh, 2019. 19 when I got wow. to Vits, yeah. Okay, so you're still a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and when I arrived there, I, it was just, I think it was just overstimulus. You know, when you just see a lot of things and you're just like, wow, the world is actually your, your oyster. Um, I'd also always had a bit of an old soul about stuff. So I'd always engaged with things a little bit ahead of my time. Okay. Um, and so the equation for me around starting a business had been kind of long in the making because I'd done quite a lot of work with my dad, who was a management consultant. So I'd spent a lot of time working in, you know, like the Johannesburg Roads Agency, even as a teenager. Okay. Um, Understanding organizations and structure and all that. So at the point I decided to start Munati Fellas, I was quite clear that I didn't actually want to have a boss, A. Um, but B, I was keen as everybody is when they're 19 to be a millionaire by 25. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, so Munati Fellas was an itch around, you know, this commercial opportunity, which I believed to be, um, linked to people understanding young people and the youth market. Um, I was very fortunate at the same time that I was serving on the, on the board of, uh, what has become now the, the, the youth Marketeers through uh, HDI, okay, um, and their first board, the Youth Advertising Board. I was the chairman of that uh, platform, and we were effectively spending time with a lot of corporates trying to govern how they speak to to young people. So all the laws around how you advertise things like um, uh, fast food, things like sugar, uh, sugarful content, etc., sure. etc. Et I sat on the board that was kind of intermediary between advertising and young people, um, and in exactly the same kind of chapter of my life, I started getting really interested in uh, the economics of branding. Um, so I was trying to kind of draw this parallel. My brain is a little bit technical and a little bit creative. And I kind of thought brand economics or that space valuations would make a good fit. Um, so there was this research thing I was doing. There was this, you know, I was trying to study. I was doing my, my second year. And so Monati Fellows was born out of, you know, why don't we try and create a, a different solution from a research and insight perspective? Youth marketeers were releasing the Generation Next study, which I looked at and was at the time a bit of a fast because they'd go to, you know, four ways and interview 100 young people. When was this, Ranima? Uh This was in 2010. 20- 
11, 2012. Okay. Um, and so they'd produced this report, the coolest, you know, brand study. Um, but the sample was like a hundred kids from four ways high, you know, and there's like, <laughs> this is the whole of South Africa. Your sample size was somewhat skewed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I was like, you know, this can be done better. And then you had like the JWTs, you had all these other players who were doing research into the youth market. And my big thing was that number one, I having sat through the process twice, the research is done over six months. It's released in month eight. Um, by month maybe 12, you're starting to implement the, the findings. And by then things have shifted dramatically. Sure. So there's ABSA, there's Barclays, there's Discovery, there's all these people now onboarding this data that's actually become redundant. So Monanti Fellows was born from trying to solve that problem is how do we give more real time insight into the youth market? Um, and that was actually where the business, where the business started. Um, when I first got everybody together, Monanti Fellows was about parties, to be quite honest. We threw lots of parties done. <laughs> three parties for yourself because that's where the beer money thing, I see the strategy coming out. It's exactly. Great. Ah, I see oh, what I did we there. <laughs> so we threw lots of parties downtown Joburg. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and kind of 16 of us trying to make a buck. Uh, but that quickly, you know, evolved into how do we give strategic insights to businesses? Um, Got it. and, uh, and that was really cool because at the time, as I mentioned, I think it was being done badly. Um, two, technology wasn't being used. So when we first started, we were tinkering around with like the private groups on like a Facebook. So like we could bring these brand marketers and have them have a fishbowl effect, but like we'd post stuff on Facebook groups that were secret and only the brand marketers could see what was happening. Nice. So we'd give them a little bit of an, like a taste of what was going on. And they felt like they were buying into the process of insights, you know, which was very important. Sure. And that at the time, I think a lot of research companies would go away and like tinker in the dark and come back and Ta-da! Um, which uh, was obviously sometimes a little bit difficult for marketers to swallow. So we got around all the hurdles that traditional uh, research houses face. So speed, um, we started using technology to do it quicker, actually bringing the client along on the journey. So when we eventually presented stuff, we weren't really selling to them. Um, yeah. They'd kind of bought into it because we'd brought them on the journey. Um, and obviously from a cost perspective, we're a lot cheaper because we use the first two things. Um, and so that's how Monati Fellows was born. So like any great entrepreneur, you saw very quickly what was broken and you saw that it was good absolutely <laughs> and that you could fix it and we ran with it hey? <laughs> that's amazing yeah i mean despite your youth you burst onto the scene i mean i saw when i was just checking out uh, your uh, online profile that you appeared in a whole bunch of publications super fast you were all over the show your personal brand was was everywhere you appeared in destiny mag alongside <laughs> elon and and zuckerberg and so on so so you clearly showed this aptitude for building your own brand as well as minati fellas and i mean what were the tactics that you deployed back then that were so successful? I think tactics reveal themselves if your principles are right. Okay. So, so what that means, I don't think I necessarily at some point kind of sat and thought, what do I do to build the brand? I just thought to myself, what will I stay true to? that I can do any time of day without even being questioned about it. And those principles have helped me to kind of then inform the tactics of what should be done. So, you know, for me, one of the, one of the major pillars of, of brand building was stay true, right? You always have to be in a lane which you don't have to be questioned about and you don't need to apply for a visa to be in that lane because it's just what you do. The best brand builders and the best value creators um, have done that with the brands that they build. If you look at, you know, the unapologetic nature of people like Elon Musk mm-hmm. um, or people like Richard Branson is that they've been able to stay in their lane and stay true to what they need to do. The second thing that I also kind of still hold very close to my heart is the notion of substance over form. And we unfortunately live in an era 
and in a world where you know form sometimes for the misinformed trumps substance mm. um, and I always came from the departure that I, I never wanted to be questioned about my ability to bring value to any conversation that I was in um, and as you know the advent of kind of young black entrepreneurs value creators has been often stained by you know black economic empowerment and sure. the narrative around being around the table because of the hue of your skin as opposed to the value you bring and that always was a bugbear for me and I made sure that in every conversation in every discussion um, I was very clear about the value equation that I brought to the table um, and that's stood me in good stead. And then uh, my word is my bond. Everybody that I've ever done business with, whether it's been a success or an absolute failure, I can every night go to bed with absolute certainty that my, what I said I was going to deliver, I delivered. And even in instances where, where it went wrong, um, you delivered in line with it going wrong, right? So, mm. And I think that reputation that carries over whether or not things go right or wrong, but you're a person that people would work with is a strong thing. Um, and you can't buy that. You know, There's really no amount of money and or amount of PRing that will give you that kind of thing. It's just those who know will know. Sure. Um, and so that is where I suppose the, the the brand effect then starts to become a network effect is that ultimately when you're not involved in conversations and your name happens to come up, yeah. the reference is always going to be positive. Um, so those are the three things that I, I try to stick to, to as my principles. I mean, I remember working with you at the IOB and the conversations. You always struck me as somebody who was very authentic and and very intentional about the way you spoke about the various topics and challenges that we were dealing with, I guess, at the IAB. And yeah. that it appears that, you know, what you're saying now, the, the authenticity, particularly mm-hmm. in the, the values and beliefs that you bring to the table as an entrepreneur, it, it's a thread that's very common amongst all the entrepreneurs that we speak to on this show, as well as me personally at Heavy Chef and my external community. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the conversations start to happen outside of, of, you know, your, mm. your own control. Absolutely. How, how important is that word of mouth and, mm. and how do you, you know, fuel that fire? Is there, <laughs> is there like a secret trick or is it really just about, you know, sticking to your word as your bond and that sort of thing? I think the secret trick is to keep doing epic things, right? <laughs> so, so. Do you- Epic things. You know, so if, if you deliver on the first three things and you keep on doing things that are, are noteworthy, they kind of work in tandem, right? So it's very difficult not to have that equation, you know, actually work for you if you are doing the right things, sticking to your word, being true, um, and you're doing the most epic things. Because if you're doing one or the other, you can actually fall short. But I believe they work really well hand in hand. And as I said, that supersedes what people call PR. That's, as you said, word of mouth. And it's like almost a virtuous circle that you sure. create, uh, by being intentional about those levers that well, you can Elon has built his business upon it, right? Absolutely. He doesn't he doesn't really advertise, he just Absolutely. uses the do epic things, which by the way should be the title of your next book <laughs> in yeah. terms of branding advice. I look at some of the famous entrepreneurs that have come out of this country and the way they, they do seem to build their brand around the actions that they do. And, mm. and you know, it, it really does relate back to that central purpose and meaning but the i suppose the the consequence and the overflow and the actions yeah. that uh, that come out of that is really where the brand is built absolutely and so i mean i i went to talk many years ago with mark shuttleworth you know he spoke about m- the fact that most things in in business can be figured out with an algorithm except for branding mm. <laughs> <laughs> he really struggled with this idea of what a brand was because yeah. it's so Difficult to define. How do you define a brand and why is it important? I spent a lot of time, uh, very fortunately, with, uh, I believe, one of Africa's brightest minds when it comes to brand building, a guy called Tebe Kalafeng. And one of the things that I learned very early from kind of shadowing him and spending time in his ecosystem was 
a brand really is just about promises. You know, if you take away all the fancy language, the notion about of a brand is the last time you made someone a promise, do you deliver on it consistently every time they interact with your space? That for me is the simplest and most profound explanation of what brand building is about. I love about. that. Sure. Right? So if you're, if you're into breaking promises, you're going to have a messed up brand. Um, but if you're into keeping the promises that you make, whether it's to your stakeholders, whether it's to your family, whether it's to your employees, that's the equity that builds a brand. And so everything else becomes how you tell the story of the brand. And that's why I like the reference to promises because that organically leads to stories, right? Um, and if you think about the promises you've made, whether it's as a you know the start, found up starter of sorbet, and you decided to promise to make your customers happy, you then build a brand, and the narrative of your stories become about happiness. Um, and in our case, as as, as Bridge Labs, our promise is to do hard things. That's our delivery. We need to do the hardest things to solve the most complex problems. That's amazing. Yeah. And then the story then that validates that is really easy that comes from it. But that's our promise. And if we're caught doing the easy things, then we're untrue to our brand, but then we also jeopardize the fact that people will buy into it. So I think for me, the, the simplest explanation about brand building is define the promise that you're making to the different stakeholders and stay true to that promise and build stories that amplify the promise that you're making to them. I couldn't agree more. I think that gives you such a beautiful framework then, right? Mm. To to construct your brand right for an early stage entrepreneur mm-hmm. in terms of uh, defining what their their brand is is mm. then look to the message that you that you want to convey and mm. and what is the promise within that message Absolutely. And you'll make your decision based on whether or not you can deliver on that promise or whether that's something that appeals to you in that delivering of the promise. Absolutely. And I suppose the converse of that would be the way to destroy the brand would be (laughs) to not deliver on those promises. Absolutely. And, And I suppose it would be a great stake in the ground then going forward as to how you make decisions mm-hmm. on what you do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I suppose the team that you surround yourself with could then look to that stake in the ground Absolutely. when they make decisions. Absolutely. In terms of how they conduct themselves. and, and Absolutely. Uh, it's amazing what promises do. They, liber- they really liberate a lot, right? So the big thing about being a startup founder or being an early stage entrepreneur is because there's so much that goes on in your own head. You don't necessarily attach value to what you commit outside of your head. So you won't say stuff. You'll think about it and you'll analyze it and you'll go through it. And in your head, it'll be super clear. <laughs> then you bring people on board and you get frustrated because they don't get what's they don't in your get head. It. Right? Sure. But you haven't articulated the promise or the thing that is keeping you going in your head. Mm. And so by doing that, you A, you liberate yourself because it's kind of like, oh, wow, I've actually been able to articulate this thing. And this, as I said, I, I'm, I'm speaking about this because I've just gone through this process with this do hard things promise. Because for the longest time as Bridge Labs, we were just like, what are we, you know, I get it and I see why we're here. And I, you know, in terms of the higher purpose, why I left Facebook, why I joined, it, it all made sense in my head. But I wasn't able to boil it down to something that I could communicate to our engineers, to our, you know, the young people that we work with. Um, and so when, when I was able to actually articulate do hard things, it's been so interesting to see how people have not only resonated with it, but also have allowed me to be able to start building the story that, that, that gives it gravitas. And you mentioned stories. How important is that storytelling process and constructing it and being intentional about it? Mm. Is it for the entrepreneur, for the, the leadership or the leader of, of the company? Super important. I think, you know, if you think about on all levels of human connection, if, if you're thinking about um, lead generation, when you meet someone for the first time and you're trying to figure out a 
way as a small business or as an entrepreneur to impress them. You're, you're thinking about the wrong thing. Mm. If you meet someone for the first time and you're able to tell them your story and even more importantly, connect to theirs, you're already one step ahead of someone that comes in there and tries to pitch them a 30 second elevator pitch. So the articulation of a story is really, really important because it gets you in the door and it very quickly allows you to understand whether people are going to do business with you or not. Because as you know, people do business with other people, not with companies. Um, and so that, that story or that narrative that you're able to speak to authentically, A, is not a sales pitch. It's mm. just you talking about your truth. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's very little that anybody can take away from that. They can't tell you, oh, no, that's wrong. Or, or you know, maybe it doesn't resonate or maybe it resonates less, but it's your truth. And in so doing, you're able to make a more authentic business connection um, with another human being. And that's the strongest way to drive business. Sure. If people don't like you and they don't buy your story, you know, that's better to know up front. Um, the problem is that a lot of people don't, don't, you know, they're not clear about their story. And so they kind of, you know, they skirt around it or they imply it or they do. And then a year down the line, the relationship is falling apart. Mm. If you do a root cause analysis, there was not really an understanding of what your story or narrative was about, mm. especially as a small business. And I think entrepreneurs get very frustrated because of that from a lot of the entrepreneurs I spend time with, you know, out of a you know sample of 10 clients, let's call it, there's probably one or two that'll become almost your like marquee or tent clients. Mm. And if you think about why and you go to the root causes, because those people are the two that are probably connected most with your story. The other eight may have given you a chance or have been like, you know, in the right place, right time. But most companies that survive past year two generally have one or two clients that have stuck with them because they're connected to a story. Yes, mm. you probably added value. You're probably not the best in the market, but your story really resonated with them. So mm. I think it's a difficult thing to underplay, but there is direct commercial um, benefit from being able to articulate clearly what your story is as an entrepreneur. Sure. And the mm. threat, I guess, would be that if you don't construct your own story and, and, and figure it out what it is and be able to articulate it in a, in a constructive way, mm. or at least in a compelling way, then you're going to find that your audience will construct the story for you. Correct. And they will then imbue it upon you. And then Correct. you suddenly are saddled with the story that Correct. may not be authentic to what you do, right? Correct. And I suppose another benefit would be that um, when giving somebody a story, you're giving them the artillery to be able to then take away and spread the news elsewhere, Correct. whether it be around a, a bri or at a dinner table or mm. at a, a networking event or whatever it may be. When people are looking for those anecdotal things, it mm. makes your audience smarter because it gives them the material to use to spread the news. Correct. And it's funny, as you, as you say that, is that with that raw material, I suppose it's also the interesting thing about our media landscape, is that sometimes people just run with it and they, they create their own versions of, of the story. Yeah. Um, and I've, and I've come across it a few times in my, in my, in my career where <laughs> the narrative you hear from people is like, how on earth did you arrive at that point? Yeah. Um, and back to what you're saying is that people will take a story and they'll run with it. Yeah. And when you, you know, when you think about it and you interpret it, there's a thread of truth mm. to the story because it started somewhere, mm. but people have made it their own in their mm. own Good weird uh, and wonderful way, which I'm, you know, I'm always conflicted about, but at the same time, I mean, if that's the interpretation of the story, it's the interpretation of the story. If you're an OCD individual who likes to control everything, that kind of thing might freak you out. Mm. Um, but it also could be something you could look at and go, wow, you know, that's, that's a different view sure. um, on, 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 on the reality as long as it's not 
not a fundamental compromise on the truth, right? Sure. And I think that's the one thing that you know, is difficult around the broken telephone thing is that people run with the story because they buy into it, but then it ends up being some kind of iteration of the story and not the real thing. Sure. And for me, it's always been as long as it's, it's not a lie, it's not, it's not untrue, then you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And secondly, as long as you're not the person who started the incorrect version, <laughs> that's <laughs> also that's then that's also a problem. Then you're being inconsistent. <laughs> Correct. And I guess that would also be the definition of not keeping your promise. Correct. Right. Right. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think w- with regards to your experience and, and obviously what I love about you, Musa, is that you, you've had the luxury of working at a big brand, uh, or in big brands and, um, and also scrapping away in the trenches as a startup entrepreneur. I mean, can you, can you talk to some of the, the tactics commonly employed by big brands, which work and, and potentially which may then also be interpreted or, or at least deployed by, by the entrepreneurs that we could learn from. Mm. So I think what, what big brands do very well, I think there's two things they do very well. The first is um, a degree of automation and the ability to understand scale, right? So that you, you can't doubt that a business the size of uh, you know, a Ned Bank, as an example, have got those things right. They've mm. been able to automate their business and they've been able to replicate it time and time again. Mm. Just understanding what that means as an entrepreneur is really important, right? Mm. Um, and yes, it comes with a lot. It comes with bureaucracy. It comes with a lot downstream. But that as a business lever is an important thing to wrap your head around, automation and scale. The second thing, which is a little bit probably on the softer side, is, you know, for all their failings, I think big organizations seek out information. They invest a lot of money in reports, in data, in trying to get information to make some of their decisions. I think that is an admirable thing to do. Where they fall short is being able to cascade that knowledge into the rest of the business. Mm. So typically, I think big business invest a lot in information, but they fail to convert it into, into actionable insight or into what can drive their business. And they fail to cascade that down into different parts of the organization. Mm. So for entrepreneurs, you know, you don't have the luxury to go and buy Gartner reports or, you know, all this amazing data and information. So a lot of it you find by hook or by crook. But when you find it, you tend to be able to kind of action it a lot quicker than big business. And then secondly, because you're probably solving, you know, quite fundamental or core challenges around your business, you, you take your eye off you know, is this a scalable thing that I'm trying to solve for? And can I automate this in what I'm trying to do? Um, when I went into, into my first foray into, into corporate South Africa, <laughs> my challenge to myself, in fact, as a, as an entrepreneur was how quickly could I make myself redundant in a big, in a big business? That was my personal challenge. And you know, you know, my experience was so weird because that is anti corporate. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I went in there and I was it's like, anti the personalities within corporate because they want to make them, they want to entrench themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when I went to NetBank, um, and I was this young Thundercat and I was like, this is cool. I, you know, I get to spend other people's money. I get to build a team. <laughs> I could, I could mess with that. But the core part of my drive was how quickly could I automate stuff to be able to make sure that I don't need to be there. That was, that was a fundamental focus. And I did that in nine months. I built a team, got the team up and running. They were all empowered. They could do what they needed to do, make decisions, move without me. Um, and at the month eight, I said to my boss at the time, Sydney Mbele, I said, dude, I've done the thing. What do we do next? And he was flabbergasted because he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, <laughs> who are you? Yeah. I said to him, young, I said to him, Padawan. <laughs> young Padawan. I said to him, Sydney, look at what I do when I come to work on a daily basis. I come to work and I showed him that I do nothing for like almost three weeks. I gave him a, you know, and I said, you guys are paying me to do nothing. And he said to me, why? 
I said, because I've made myself redundant. And only at that point did I realize what you're saying is that the construct of corporate is not that. Mm. The construct of a corporate organization is how do I create as much reliance on me as possible mm. to ensure that I preserve myself? Mm. Um, and that was a fundamental turning point for me in my own head around value creation in the different context. But as mm. entrepreneurs, that is what we solve for is make yourself redundant quickly. Therefore, you can go play golf, hopefully. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, how do you keep the machine going with uh, you, yourself? as a vital cog within that machine yeah. right mm. and it's almost counterintuitive the construct the mm. way it's it's been built and it's something i suppose that you'd even have to watch out for as a medium-sized business mm. for that sort of mentality to emerge yeah. within your your uh, your leadership team mm. I, I guess yeah. if you look at being an effective marketer you know a lot of the startup entrepreneurs that i mean i've worked with they work in very Sexy industries, you know, like you would imagine stuff. Uh, I mean, not sexy in the, the, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, the, the literal sense of the word. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, like retail and fashion and design and, and those sort of things. Mm. But what if you have a product that's, you know, like a, a widget or cooking oil or, you know, some kind of part of a bigger machine or, you know, a, a bus seat or, mm. you know, the fabric that covers the handbrake in cars or, yeah. you know, something like that. How do you market that? How do you make an unsexy business sexy? Yeah, I think it's such an interesting question because ultimately, back, back to your point, it's the unsexy industries that will make you rich, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Nobody else wants to do them. Exactly. I'll Someone, sell that cement. Someone has become to become the richest guy in Africa, exactly. for sure. Um, I think from a marketing perspective, there is always an element of of sexiness in an authentic story. So I think coming back to the notion that even as someone that sells cement or even manure, if you're able to define something that is so authentic to you, there's still a story in there. That's the first thing is that the, don't lose that because you feel that you're in an industry that's less sexy or less appealing. Someone will still buy an uh, Aleko Dangote, which is, which is the, the cement guy. <laughs> the cement guy. Yeah. Um, uh, most people wouldn't be able to pick out the bag of cement that he sells, but they'll be able to relate to his story as an individual. Mm. And so the downstream effect is that, yes, he started selling cement, but Dangonte Enterprises now is the narrative around possibility from an enterprise and an economic development perspective. It's aspirational. It's the right? reference point, right? Mm. Because he's stuck to the story. Secondly, when you're dealing in commodities, you know, stuff that effectively the price is not determined by you, uh, you have to spend a lot more time in the world of experience. That literally has to be what you solve for. So the price is very much fixed so you know no matter how much if you maybe if you put gold dust in your cement you could up the price but <laughs> ultimately the price is determined by by external factors sure then as an entrepreneur your role is to is to solve for the experience everything else around the product because if that is not stacking up then once again your promise won't be able to be delivered correctly but i think it's so delightful when people that are in commoditized industries take the time to think about those things because often the view is oh, i sell tractor heads or i sell you know something that people will come in and they'll know what they want and they pick it and they buy it. Yeah. Yes, there's some truth to that. But for someone who's never experienced attracted before, to have an amazing user journey, an amazing user experience on your website, sure. just takes it to the next level. Mm. And then you're competing in a very different league. So I think don't sweat the experience things around the commodity or the product. But secondly, in every commodity or product, there still is a story. And you have to interrogate that commodity or product until the story reveals itself to you. Or you have to create a story that people can resonate with. And what about service industries like mm. a you know legal firm or mm. from my old profession digital marketing agency you know mm. where you're selling time is that different is that still the same sort of thing sell the experience or is there are there some other tactics that you can speak to 
I think it, it's similar but but different. So when you're selling time, I believe that you shortchange yourself because your value equation is related to a widget, a metric, you know, that's defined by seconds, minutes, hours. Mm. Um, and so ultimately when people are looking at you and they're trying to make a decision on whether they should use you or not, people often make that the overarching thing that they look at. If you look at procurement and the way they procure services from that nature, it's ruthless because those are the widgets that they come down to. But if we change the construct around the widget in relation to everything else that you get, because you can't quantify the fact that I have peace of mind about dealing with a particular agency. That mm. is a very important thing to sell to someone. Mm. Because if I give you the chance for the first time and I don't have peace of mind, it means that I'm actually taking a huge risk on my part. Mm. But what's the value that you attach to peace of mind in engaging with with you as a business? We don't. And so we focus on the hours and the hours are billable and the, they stack up. But the agencies and the professional service companies like law firms that have started to understand that there's, there's more to just the hour rate model than billing hours. It's everything else on top of that that you can start to add into the way you communicate to people Um, into the way you show up for people and into the way you represent understanding their business. Because I think a big part of people who bill hours is you have to show up as the best version of the client every single time you engage with the client. Um, And you can't, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you can't sweat that because that's what uh, people like Accenture and Deloitte do very well is that they can walk into a boardroom, a senior group of executives from any consulting firm, Bain, BC, you name it, can walk into any boardroom and know the client better than the client knows themselves Mm. because they show up as the better version of their client. Mm. Um, so based on that, there's very little that the client can actually do to then question the amount of money you bill because it's gone past the billable hours. It's now a knowledge space where it's very difficult to quantify. Hence, if you look at how consulting firms have grown over time, you wonder why you know McKinsey will be in Absa for like 25 years is because there's now an ingrained belief that's been baked into the promise that McKinsey makes that we understand your business sometimes even more than you do. Yeah. Uh, and if you then go back to the dynamics of big corporates where you've got executive heads leaving all the time, you've got attrition, you've got knowledge transfer, then there's probably a business case to say that this McKinsey consultant who's been here for five years probably does know the business more than you do. Yeah. Right. So that goes, that goes over and above the fact that you're billing whatever amount you're billing. Um, it goes to this understanding, intrinsic knowledge of showing up better than the client in most instances. So I think that's an important thing for service businesses to understand. So in a way to brand yourself, to position yourself, to market yourself is indispensable based on the fact Absolutely. that you have more knowledge about about the client and, and I suppose the problems. Absolutely. Then, in an authentic uh, way. Sure. You know, cause you do get those, those A type beep beeps who rock up and they just want to show you how smart they are. And, <laughs> you know, we know them, but the trick is to do that in an authentic way. And clients mm. will know if you're clear about the problem you're solving and they'll attach a premium that you won't be able to bill for, but it will be a psychological contract that they can't break. So I think that's a really key thing for service businesses. Musa. Let's just say I'm a small business startup and, and I'm creating this brand, creating the narrative, and I'm, I'm looking at the positioning and I'm trying to be strategic about it. And I've created this promise. I don't have a huge amount of money. Mm. What are the tactics that I could then look to to spreading the news, getting the word out there mm. as efficiently as possible? And I mean, I know that there's a huge amount of options to us, but I mean, are there things that bubble to the surface that you see consistently work mm. for startup entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think uh, for startups, I think you have to mash up two processes. You have to mash up your sales development process with your research process. <laughs> I think that's the best way to get that right. Because in your sales development process, you're pitching value to new clients. And at the same time, you're collecting research on not only your product, but your story. So 
I don't believe for a startup entrepreneur, you should be spending less than about 10 hours a week in front of new customers. You have to. Okay. Because it helps you to refine the narrative of what you're selling, but it also helps you get real-time research to make the thing better. Um, and if you're not spending that face time, I, I probably put it to you that any other mass marketing that you'll do as a result will be misinformed. Mm. Um, because if you haven't spent the time figuring out, you know, I'm trying to sell an LMS, who do I need to go speak to that user? If you don't speak to like 100 teachers and a few other corporates that want to do learning management, um, then when you start to do these big brand ads or these huge, you know, we're spending money, I believe you'll have, a, you'll be missing a, what I call empathy in, in your marketing equation mm. because you won't have understood the pain point that you're solving for. So in our context, I think the, the big advantage for small entrepreneurs and small businesses is that FaceTime builds that empathy into you. It builds it as, as natural. It's like it's your default position when you're thinking about the people that you're trying to serve. Mm. If you haven't done that time with them, sitting with them, listening to about their problems and everything else, you won't be clear about who you're marketing to, but you also won't have an empathetic bone in your body. Mm. Um, and so then when you start to do this great brand marketing and positioning, you're kind of doing the, you know, the lipstick on a pig thing because you actually don't understand what challenge you're grappling with. So I think that's first and most important. So essentially – do the research and hit the bricks at, <laughs> Get exa- at exactly the same time. And you don't, yeah. it's not two separate processes. So, so in other words, hitting the bricks and being in front of clients is doing the research Absolutely. and building that empathy Absolutely. and understanding, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that's, I couldn't agree with you more. A big trap that I see a lot of startup entrepreneurs falling into is that they immerse themselves in tweaking mm. and they, they're just continually, you know, sitting back at the office, mm. where, wherever they may be, mm. and not engaging, not mm. getting out there, not actually hitting the bricks mm. as much as they should be. And, and you say 10 hours at least per week. At right? least, yeah. Okay. Think, I mean, think about the logistics. That's two hours a day, right? Yeah. So if you're any entrepreneur in the startup phase, it's not like you have a lot of things to do. Let's be honest, right? Mm. <laughs> you're trying to fill your time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, For sure. Let's be frank. Well, they tweak. A lot of them t- just tweak. <laughs> exactly. But you're saying get out get there. Get out there. Ring, spend the time. Ring doorbells. Ring the door, you know, as much as possible because it's difficult to explain to someone who hasn't been through it because mm. ultimately if you're sitting there and you're kind of trying to fish and you, you know, online, I believe in all that stuff, by the way. But I really also believe in an empathetic viewpoint to the people you're trying to serve. Mm. And there's no other way. There's no amount of research that will give you empathy to understanding the customer that you're trying to serve. Mm. Um, and back to my view on the way we build brands is that you have to understand the promise you're making to Fred or the promise you're making to Marianne or the promise you're making to Sipo. Mm. And how will you do that uh, mm. if you haven't understood them by sitting with them? So so that first piece is critical because then, you know, back to the question you're asking, then all this other stuff ladders up. Then when you speak about, you know, should I run a Facebook campaign? Well, yeah, run a Facebook campaign, but mm. what are you going to say? Mm. You know, if you haven't had that FaceTime and that runtime, what's the message you're putting out there? Sure. Should I do TV ads? Yeah, well, do TV ads, but what are you going to say? You know, do I do radio? Yes, do radio, but what are you going to say? You know, so mm. all of it comes back to that runtime that gives you the empathy to be able to be clear about the marketing that's going to work and the messaging that's going to land based on the promise that you need to make to these people. So I think that's the sequence which we need to approach it. And let's just go back to the research then again. I mean, I think mm. it's a, I suppose, a bit of a broad question to say, well, then once we have a little bit of money in the bank and now we need to, we can advertise and market and so on, like, you know, how do we do that? And the reality is I, I, I'm guessing you would say, well, you need to, you need to research. You need to figure out where your target audience is sitting, what they're doing, what their behavioral traits are and so on. So, so let's talk about research then and going back to your, you know, where you cut your teeth. <laughs> yeah. I think what would be very interesting to me, and I believe a lot of our listeners, mm. The millennial audience and the the youngsters that are coming up, mm. how does one go about doing a research project? Mm. 
You know, for me, research is what I refer to as structured listening. And structured listening effectively is being very intentional about what you're trying to understand. In this day and age, research starts out by you getting in front of customers and understanding from an empathetic point of view the problem you're solving. Once you've got some kind of hypothesis around that, then you can really start to test that hypothesis through asking questions, through setting up if you're going to have an online platform where people come in, they interact with your product, setting up the right question points in their user journey to be able to ascertain certain information. If you've got a product you want them to test, creating an environment where where you can ask them certain questions. So I think there's the art and then there's the science. And the art of it is effectively trying to make sure you remove as much of your own bias from listening deliberately mm-hmm. in engaging with your customers. Because the other problem with research is I could sit here and I could you know, pose a question to you like, this is one of the greatest bottles of water I've ever seen. What do you think about it? Right? Mm-hmm. That's a very biased it's question. Leading, it's leading le- the witness. Cor- correct. Leading the witness, Your Honor. Mm-hmm. You know? Because you're not asking a question. You're actually reinforcing your own bias. So mm-hmm. the, the science of it is that we need to be quite open to receiving information or research research or feedback that goes against everything that we know and understand and believe. And that's not an easy thing to do. The second thing is being able to set up cost-effective ways to ensure that you're not doing research as a lane on its own. So as I said, if you're going to launch a web page, test some things on your web page as you launch it. That's still part of research. If you're having sales calls on a weekly basis, integrate a set of questions that you ask every single time you're there, which is research on its own. So the notion that research stands alone is, is something that I, that I challenge small businesses to think about and entrepreneurs to think about because if you understand that the science just needs to be non-biased and has to reach a good number of people, you can then integrate it into whatever you're doing anyway so that it's not just the other thing that you do, but it also builds the right culture into your into your small business. It builds the right culture on curiosity and uh, holding your assumptions lightly, which is a very important term I learned when I was at business school, is that you have a set of assumptions and don't believe that the rest of the world uh, you know, believes in them. And if you're going to get the right kind of nuggets, you need to hold all of your assumptions lightly. Mm-hmm. And when you engage from a research perspective, be prepared to have them challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also not a really easy thing to do. Um, I think startup founders and small businesses who <laughs> are very protective. Exactly. Over their ideas. Yeah, like, oh, very what, precious. What do you mean it doesn't work? Yeah. Like, but just think about this differently. And especially techies, right? Because techies are like creatives, so to speak. Um, when they've built something, it's like their masterpiece. So now, you know, you must tell me that it's different. <laughs> You know, you know how it works. I certainly do. <laughs> yes. So, so as a technical founder, just hold your assumptions lightly. I know it's difficult. It's actually a, it's a thing that you need to work through as an individual. Is that when I'm getting people to critique my work, they're critiquing the work and not me. So that separation is very, very important because it'll be the difference between hearing a key thing that someone says to you and just being like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm the professional. I'm the techie. I built this thing. Obviously, I know what it means. But the guy's going, the payment is not that easy to do. Um, and you're going, what do you mean it's not that easy? I've done the best integration into Stripe. It's it works. What do you mean it's not easy? But all they're saying is that, you know, there's there's three steps, it could be one, but you're not listening from that perspective. Yeah. You know, so so I think those are important things to keep in mind because research, you know, is a valuable thing. Um, but my big challenge is don't do it as a as a work stream. It should be integrated into how you're doing things on a daily basis. And Musa, are there any easy to access tools, research tools that yeah. are available that you can think of off the top of your head? The one I rate quite highly, um, Typeform is a really, really user friendly yes, uh, platform. It correlates data, you can build lots of interesting ways and you know different methods to ask people questions sure. over time and lots of online tutorials to help you Correct. create it properly and so Correct. Right? and so you don't have to worry i mean part of research is like how do i warehouse it where does it all stay yada yada but type sure. form is typically one i've used a lot and, and works really well and it really integrates into a lot of other things um, which is also pretty cool so you know you can use one central entry point for all your information and you can house it there is also you know kind of the age old you know you carry a computer with you everywhere you go so you know record some of the conversations that you have you know if you have 
have clients that are willing to let you record the conversations um, and then play them back to yourself. You know, okay. when you've got some time, then you, you know, you're sitting and reflecting on what they said. Sometimes you don't catch the context until you reflect back on it. So mm. I find that if you have that discussion and um, you ask your client if you can record the conversation, when you play it back to yourself, you pick up on certain things that you may have missed. So that's, mm. a, I think it's a, it's a free and very useful tool. Um, and then as much as possible, the ongoing documentation of things that just spark, right? So, you know, it may be random. It may be a voice note, maybe a clip, or maybe something someone says, but always be ready to take those notes as you go along because those are all kind of nuggets that help you build up the thing. So those are completely free things that you can do, but they're also very important because they help you to kind of build up information as you go along. And then there's portals, right? So there's the, you know, if you go to like the McKinsey's, the Deloitte's, all the consulting peeps have got some or other portal where they're publishing research and short papers or whatever it is all the time. So there's already research that you can Correct. access and it's freely Correct. available and you just have to Google is your friend. Correct. Right? Absolutely. And then make reference of the ones that are actually worth their, their water because there's also a lot of junk out there. Sure. So over time, you'd be able to get a bit of a, you know. How do you a, discern what's good and bad research? So I think if you're going to look at desktop research in the academic world, if it's been cited a number of times, so okay. if lots of people are referring to it as, you know, a good piece of research, the probability sure. is, to, you know, it's decent. Um, so there's scholarly articles which you can look through. There's also, if you're clever, you'll start to pick up from the authors that write the research. You, you know, you Google them and you see, mm. you know, where they work and what mm. they do. Um, if he hasn't got a, you know, an online presence, then, you know, you should question whether what he's writing is, is credible. But, you know, there are all these signals that allow you to be able to at least validate. Um, and then test that. So, you know, in conversations, you know, drop theories, drop ideas, speak about things. And if people go, that's actually nonsense, you know, then, you know, you can start to kind of test that for yourself. Okay. So go down mm-hmm. the rabbit hole a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And if you look back on the, the research that you've been privy to, Musa, mm-hmm. what, are there any really interesting trends that you can, particularly in the youth side of things, anything that you've noticed that is just really compelling? There's actually a lot, right? Um, but for me, I've kind of started to become uh, obsessed is the wrong word, but I've started interrogating this notion around where Africa ends up, right? So we, are, I believe we're in the journey, mm. but where Africa ends up for me is interesting. Um, sure. And and I speak about you know things from subdermal living. You know, could we solve the problems of Africa by building you know environments underground, as an example? Could we solve some of the problems of Africa by incorporating blockchain into how we allocate land? So there's questions around where we end up as a continent. And I then work back from that to try and understand what trends we should be watching out for now. And with young people in particular, there's so much that's changing in the way they interact with the world. There's so much that they're challenging um, that it's often a little bit, for me, disconcerting because there's so much happening at the same time. But at a high level, the very real psychological thinking around being able to do anything. You know, there's that movie, I think it's called Limitless, yes, you know, yeah. where, where you've got yeah, where great you, movie. Yeah, where, where, where you literally can do anything. Like there's yeah, a pull you take and you yeah, can do anything. I want to be that guy. Right? That pull, right? Yeah, yeah, I want to to deal those pills. Um, (laughs) But but I believe that we are literally in the age where young people believe that, and and they don't believe it in a way that someone's told them it. It, They just grew up believing it um, that limits don't actually exist. And if you think about that as a trend, and you start to consider, as I said, the journey that Africa is on, I really believe that our job is to start to stoke that fire. Because if you believe that anything is possible, what are the things we should be exposing young people to at an earlier age to be able to accelerate our development as a continent? And so that organically leads me to education, which is a big part of what I think is on the trajectory to the end goal. And one of the LMSs that we've built um, is is trying to essentially take education away from the formal structure of an NQF and a qualification. It's just assembling learning for the benefit of a particular task, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what these young people want to learn is that then, you know, getting an honors degree is really going to mean nothing.
nothing. Being able to solve for I need to learn how to code right now is is more important, or I need to make this particular pastry right now is is more important. So so that for me, as a result of being limitless, you're using education to be able to lead us to the end of where Africa may become. Another huge theory that I've got obviously is got to this idea around geography and our our relationship to geography, and what's really impressive and fascinating about Africa and young people is that we will increasingly start to see lots of really amazing stories from random Africans in different parts of the world, right? It's the Trevor Noah effect, except we know Trevor Noah because he came from here. Sure. But think about all the other African countries that have got um, um, Dembete, I think his name was, um, from New Guinea or Ghana. Young guy, scored in the World Cup. He's 18 years old. He's just completely comes out of nowhere and he's in the World Cup and he's making waves. Then you're going to have people that are, you know, in, in NASA and these big organizations, all from African origin. And so geography now becomes less of a thing because at some point, the African narrative was very much related to geography. Um, and I think this notion that you can be anything anywhere in the world is an important trend for young people mm. because they're really starting to challenge the, the principle that for me to succeed, I need to be in any one place. Now, the important implication for South African young people is that we need to be encouraging young people to travel more. And I think that's still a big thing we need to get over. As I'm sure you know, as someone who's traveled a lot, there's no such mm. thing as an education from being exposed to different parts of the world. It's perspective. It, it's a gift, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's previously been the reserve of those who could afford as opposed to now where young people are actually almost demanding to be exposed to new and different things. Sure. And as that continues to happen, you'll have lots more of these kind of, you know, Trevor Noah's, for lack of a better word, popping up in different parts of the world um, that are able to have opinions and people take them seriously. Mm. Um, and then the last thing, obviously, is is how augmentation will then play into this, right? So you've got geography, which is no longer a thing. Um, you've got this ability to be limitless, which is where I think creativity sits. And then you're going to have to have how that intersects now with the fourth industrial revolution, as they say, or augmentation, is that given those two things, how will younger people embrace technology to think about it not as an exclusive thing at very much an intrusive thing so when you start putting a microchip into your wrist yeah for us older guys it's like what yeah, yeah. <laughs> big brother exactly. but we kind of have already right with our, my mobile phones tracking exactly. us all over the show exactly but for a young person they won't think twice about it mm. it won't be a th- it, the decision point won't be the same for them it will be a no-brainer in terms of augmentation so now i've got this thing i'm trying to solve for creativity limitless geography is no longer an option here's a thing i can put into my my body that allows me to achieve those two things. The equation is very simple. Mm. Um, so if we're thinking about young people in those terms, we actually will start to deal with them very differently because I think that is actually where revolutions come from. We all, we've seen it all the time mm. is that when young people embrace those three things in their full glory and they're able to understand how technology influences their creativity and also completely eradicates geography, then we're dealing with a very, very different group of humans. It's frightening, but it's also really exciting. It's exciting, yeah. right? We yeah. say so you and I, when we were at the IB together, digital marketing was growing like crazy. Yeah. And now it seems to have evolved since then. I mean, that was back in like 2013 or so. You were the head of brand. I was the head of agencies. And we were mm. talking a lot about where digital marketing was going, yeah. uh, including social media and AdWords and, you know, real-time bidding and all those sort of things, which which were incredibly exciting areas within marketing but now it appears that it's become this kind of big amorphous mess and (laughs) you know there's so many areas of digital marketing popping up and you've i believe uh gone on record as saying digital marketing is dead (laughs) yes yeah so so what do you mean by that (laughs) digital marketing is dead it's it's the same principle as you know do we believe fishes 
believe that they're in water. <laughs> they probably don't, right? Because that's all they know. Yeah. And now we're talking about digital marketing around as a thing, as a concept that sits outside of how people or a communicate. Segment, yeah. Exactly. When I had that title as head of digital marketing at, at Medbank, I was like, guys, this is a non-starter. Like, why are we talking about digital marketing as a as an extension, as though it's different to communication? The thing we're solving for is better communication. Um, what changes around better communication is just what changes around better communication. It's got nothing to do with anything. Now, the problem is that for us to to tackle the subject matter of digital marketing as marketers who are pretty traditional we have to ring fence it and deal with it separately mm-hmm. um, so that we know that I deal with a thing I don't know really well and then I deal with the traditional stuff that I know really well as opposed to trying to solve for being able to communicate better in a digital age right that's a very different departure point and uh, I'm afraid that the younger guys are and the youth of you know the marketing fraternity are coming in with a native understanding that those are not separate ideas sure. they've got a very clear view of very silly example is that, you know, for us to achieve this particular project, set up a WhatsApp group so we can get it done quickly. You don't have to consider it or think about it in the nature that it's a WhatsApp group. It's how we communicate. Mm. <laughs> Let's just get it done quickly. Mm. Whereas a 45 year old will be like, oh, it's a WhatsApp group. <laughs> Do we have governance structures around it? We need to get it? the rules Do and we, regulations uh, guy in. Like, we're trying to solve a problem. This is the quickest way to do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So if you're dealing with that, um, and you then have terms like digital marketing or we have, you know, digital media, you have all these terms. Um, I've always believed you're creating unnecessary silos around knowledge and education. You mm. are, you are giving people the license to say I know this and I don't know that and the more we talk about communication in a new way it actually also equalizes the playing field because now when you employ people you're not asking them uh, do you know digital it's like yeah, what do you mean do I know yeah, digital what do you mean? <laughs> we live in it <laughs> exactly. and everything has become digital right so if you look at the old four print radio outdoor and yeah. TV yeah. they're all digital exactly. now you know so you can deploy stuff off of those those media yeah Via digital methods, you Correct. can. I mean, if you look at TV and even print, you Correct. Know, print is now as as I suppose been it's translated yeah. to digital media. Yeah, the language is the big problem. I think to a certain extent, the digital media industry and digital marketing industry have been the biggest culprits mm. because, as you said, in the heyday of you know you know the early days, you created a whole dictionary of words that you guys only knew. Yeah, that we you were the artic- smartest guys in the room. <laughs> exactly, and now, you could articulate it to what it means, like CPCs and yeah. you know. <laughs> Total cost yeah, per yeah. you know, you create yeah. all this like language, sure. and as a result, you were like, "Oh my goodness!" And at the time, you could probably you know get a premium because you knew stuff. Yeah, um, and over time, that became the standard. And now that it's become mainstream, that is now in a way to keep people out, almost feel like they can't connect with it. Mm. So we have to go back to kind of undoing that, unfortunately, because the generation that's then skipped and gets that stuff because they can Google it and YouTube it and understand it really quickly, uh, come in and they're like, "But that's not really the value that you're supposed to add. The mm. value is very different." Meanwhile, you've got this guy that's grown up his whole life. Being the king of CPC, and now you know speaking to a young person who's going, that's not such a great thing to be king of. I mean, I understand it. <laughs> yeah. So, what other value are you bringing? And he's yeah. like, well, you know, I can crack CPC, yeah, but what else? You know, yeah. so so that's really got us and in a bit a, of a conundrum. It's a, a youngster who's just watched a few tutorials <laughs> and can pretty much do it, and sometimes learn faster oh, and correct. better tactics and correct. techniques. I mean, where does that leave us? Are we then moving to uh, an era where? The softer skills like creativity are, I mean, on top of obviously the technical skills, which, which I think you need to select and choose and do that, which you're made to do. But are we looking at creativity as being the, the sort of next bastion of strength in terms of you as an individual yes. entrepreneur as well as the, the technicians within growing teams. Absolutely. So I've always been a big fan of getting the balance right between technical skills um, and the softer skills. 
the challenge, as you know very well, is that technical skills lend themselves to easier automation than the softer skills. And that's mm. what's happening. So everyone's freaking out about uh, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera. Because mm. a lot of those can be mimicked by a robot, if not better. So what does that mean? It means that you don't necessarily have to discount understanding how things work technically, but you have to over-index on understanding things like creativity, things like leadership, things like being able to communicate across bias, being able to lead people in ambiguity, being mm. able all the other stuff, which was kind of the, you know, the reserve for the Googles and the Facebook books of the world have now become mainstream. And if you haven't spent time applying yourself, you know, enable to understand how far you are from those things, then I believe that you're at a higher risk of being redundant. At the cost of maybe plugging University of Johannesburg, I've just been recently appointed to a platform um, which allows me to advise the marketing sciences department. Um, And they're effectively grappling with the same thing because they're actually, they're the technical part. And uh, I said to them, guys, I'm getting graduates out of University of Johannesburg that are useless. You know, I put them into conversations, I put them into environments and they are waiting for me to give them instructions, literally. Give me something to do. And I'm Mm. like, but that's not the way the world works. Mm. So now they're going on a process where they've evaluated their entire marketing offering and their computer science offering and their data offering and they're trying to mash it into one new way of giving a technical competence to a marketing professional. Mm. So it means you have to have a little bit of entry-level coding. You have to understand data and um, databases and building them. You have to understand all these other things. It's not not deep, but it's enough for Mm. you to be technically competent. The second piece around how do you become a better leader? How do you have a high degree of empathy? How do you lead in ambiguity? All those things are courses which are, once again, the preserve of the guys who can afford to go to MBA or Singularity or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But similarly, there's courses online that get you closer to that. So I think that dance is very important, the dance between the soft skills, because that is definitely um, where people are going to see most value in the future, and then the hard skills, because you can't ever be questioned uh, around that. And my advice is always to entrepreneurs and even young people is that always have the right balance of both. Don't over-index on the one or the other because you'll find yourself in a place where it'll be very frustrating because you'll have a PhD in stuff and you just won't be able to deliver anything or you'll be able to deliver everything but it'll be not grounded in, in theory or academia. Sure. So try and, if, if you ever have the opportunity, try and kind of play in those two worlds in a way that gives you the right balance in the way you approach problem solving. Musa, this has been incredibly valuable and uh, and very enlightening. And I think it's the kind of stuff that we could actually go on forever talking about. <laughs> There's so many subtexts and sub yeah. areas that you could really focus on and zero in on. And, and uh, I mean, we've hardly even spoken about social media and so on. But I think I want to end it off with just getting from you some tips for entrepreneurs who are looking at getting cracking with their brand building journey. Mm. Well, I think the the first thing is just start, you know. It's not as theoretical as everyone likes to make it out to be, right? You know, there's always... This, this misconception that at some point something magical will happen and then your brand will, you know, brand building will start. No, mm. you know, it, it really is an iterative approach. Just start, just do something. Even if that something is create a bad logo, you know, even if that something <laughs> is go and present your vision to someone, even, you know, whatever it is, start something. Mm. Um, you know, that's the principle of, of value creation, as you know. So once you've started something, it is automatic and organic that you're trying to refine the thing that you've started. If it means you sit down and you say, what's my vision for this business? How do I believe my story aligns to it? And what's the identity or strategy I'm going to go with? That's a good starting point. Mm. Because once you've exposed that to someone, they'll go, mm, ah, that doesn't work. Or mm, that actually resonates or it doesn't. But the organic nature of the way you chisel it towards an outcome is really important. Mm. And then last but not least, you know, where you start is not necessarily where you'll end up. So don't get yourself caught up in, I'll make the wrong decision. I know for me as an 
you know, entrepreneur a lot of the times, even when it comes to personal branding, the fear is that, oh, geez, things are changing so rapidly. What happens if I do something now that I'll have to undo later? And it's a real, it's a real thing, mm. but don't get caught up in that because, yeah. you know, if nobody knows about you, nobody cares really. Mm-hmm. Um, so start the process and you'll see where you kind of develop. It's always interesting when entrepreneurs look back at their first business card that they ever created. And you're going to be embarrassed about <laughs> exactly. it. It's exactly. the first logo, the first website, exactly. the first email sales pitch that you did. It's exactly, right? There's evidence for guaranteed you. Guaranteed you're going to be embarrassed. Every single entrepreneur that takes out the first thing they produced as a business strategy or business card or CI yeah. is utterly and shamefully embarrassing, yeah. which is fine. It's perfect. That's actually what's supposed to happen. So if you think that you're going to crack it the first time, you know, don't, don't think about it that way. Think about it as getting started because yeah. then you're going to build on it and, you know, you're going to have an embarrassing business card and an embarrassing website and a vision that doesn't make sense. And that's okay. Um, go with the process and incrementally build on it and get better at it. To start. Yeah. Thank you very much. And Musa, thank you so much for your time. It's been an awesome session thank and I uh, look forward to working with you in the future. Likewise. Thanks, Fred. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media. Tag at discovery underscore essay. Use the hashtag DSY healthy business and please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Whether it's Apple, Spotify or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more episodes on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts.